Good afternoon, everyone. Hope you are doing well. Uh, And you've got your Bible still open, or if it's not, you can open it now to Matthew 5 from verse 17. My name's Sam, by the way, if I haven't met you. And um, I'm a little bit under the weather, so I apologise for that. How about we start by praying? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for this uh, time this afternoon to keep working through this um, amazing piece of scripture we have, uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, We ask that uh, through the things that are quite challenging uh, in what Jesus brings out here, that you would um, search our hearts, that we would be aware of our sin, uh, but more more than that, we'd be aware of the incredible forgiveness uh, offered through Jesus. And we pray that we would cling on to that um, this afternoon. In Jesus' name, amen. Coles moves baby formula behind the counter alongside cigarettes and razors. Now I've got to say that this was a headline that popped up uh, for me this week that I had to look twice at. Because it seems a bit strange, doesn't it? Not only is baby formula held behind lock and key, but Coles and Woolworths have both given a two-tin limit per customer. Now, if you know why uh, from the news, then you know it's due to a large number of people who take the baby formula and resell it in bulk to China to make a profit. And over in China, they've had some health scares with their own baby formulas. So at first glance, it's a strange rule, but then you understand better the bigger picture. But it's not the strangest ruling we have in Australia. I'll give you another one. In Western Australia... It's illegal to be in possession of more than 50 kilograms of potatoes. It's true. If you get found carrying more than 50 kilograms of potatoes in your car, it's a punishable offence. It's been a law since 1946, and there's a lot of Western Australians who are looking to get rid of that law. There's lots of rules in our world today. A lot of them are helpful, but sometimes we need to wonder why we have them, why they exist. We might feel this way about the laws we read about in the Old Testament. And we might wonder, do we still follow them in the same way as the original readers? And and how do we follow them? And more importantly, what is the reason for them? Why are they there? Well, we're continuing through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount this afternoon. Uh, We've already seen some incredible things, some radical teaching from Jesus that's kind of I guess you'd say it's counterintuitive to the way that our world would think. Uh, Those who are poor in spirit, they're blessed. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they're the blessed ones. Those who are persecuted, they're blessed too. See, living for the kingdom, it's, it's upside down living. Jesus commands his followers, and that includes you and I, to be salt and light in this world. We heard that last week from Kamal. Um, salt and light as we live for him. So there's some radical stuff we've seen already. Now imagine if you were there in the crowd listening to Jesus. You're sitting down hearing what he's saying. You might be amazed by what he's saying. But you might also be wondering whether you can actually trust him. If If you understand the law well, like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law then you might think that maybe Jesus is teaching a new message. 
something that maybe contradicts the law. How can you take on such a radical teaching if it doesn't match up with what you know or understand as the very words of God? Well, this is what Jesus addresses in our passage today. He boldly claims that he has no desire to rewrite history. He doesn't want to change God's law, but rather he comes to fulfill it all. So let's read uh, from verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Jesus here is warning his hearers never to think for a second that he's come to rewrite what God has given his people in the past. He hasn't come to cancel it out. He hasn't come to tear out pages or make edits on any bit of scroll or a page. See, when it comes to Jesus, not one thing about the law changes. And nothing will change until everything in salvation history is accomplished, until heaven and earth pass away. In fact, Jesus is so in tune with the law and what God has spoken through the Old Testament, he claims that he fulfills it. He literally fills the law. He makes it complete. The words of the Old Testament are seen fully in Jesus. See, as we work our way through the Old Testament, all of it points to Jesus. It's all moving towards him. By fulfilling the law, Jesus shows all the way in which the Old Testament was pointing to him. The Old Testament teaches us about sin, the need for peace with God, uh, God's saving rescue throughout time, and the love that he has for his people. But the Old Testament was only a partial revelation. We don't see the whole picture until Jesus comes along in human flesh. He reveals how the Old Testament points toward himself. But he was also the one who was able to keep the law perfectly. In his righteousness, Jesus was actually able to follow the law without sinning. He was the only one who could. And so Jesus, he wants his hearers to know that the law is still relevant. It doesn't for a second contradict his teaching. But the law is the words of God, and he's speaking with God's authority. There's no contradictions. His teaching is in line with the law because they are all words from God himself. But Jesus is also correcting his hearers about what it means to live as one of God's people. Have a look at verse 19. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Seems like another confusing statement doesn't it? Because Jesus appears to be teaching that the righteousness of the follower, it needs to be greater than the Pharisees and the teachers of the law in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, the Pharisees, they were the ones who upheld the law. They made a great deal about the law and about their own righteousness, particularly their outward righteousness. 
their standards of following the law were extremely high. So what is Jesus saying here? Is he saying that righteousness is the way to salvation by way of good works? Is that what's required to enter the kingdom? Well, perhaps it'll help us to jump ahead a little bit. So if you've got your Bible there, flick over the page to the very last verse of chapter 5, verse 48. It's also on the screen behind me. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, the law required perfection. And Jesus, in line with the law, requires perfection. But Jesus, in fulfilling the law, became the sacrifice needed for our sin. On the cross, he became our Passover lamb. He was sacrificed once for all, making us perfect and transforming us forever. He has made us perfect. Therefore, through this fulfillment, we can see that the righteousness of Jesus' followers does indeed surpass that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law because their righteousness was external. Uh, you see in the Gospels, Jesus criticizing them greatly, the Pharisees. Uh, in Matthew twenty three twenty seven, he calls them whitewashed tombs. They look beautiful on the outside, but inside they're full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. See, the Pharisees, they worked so hard to follow the law, but in doing so, they'd forgotten something really important. They'd forgotten why the law existed. And that is that God, in love, called his people to be like him. They'd forgotten God and his love. Their obsession with their pious deeds had made them lose sight of the reason why God put such laws into place. Uh, take, for example, a law from Leviticus. I've put up on the screen behind me. Uh, Leviticus 19, verses 9 to 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. See, it's one thing to obey uh, the law to not reap to the edges of the field. That's the law that's given. But it's another to realize that God set this in place because he loves the poor and the foreigner. He wanted to see them fed, and he wanted to see his people care for them. But you see, the, Phar the Pharisees and the teachers of the law had become so self-focused and so self-righteous that they'd forgotten about God's love for the weak and the vulnerable. It's God's love that drives the law. And he wants his followers to be imitating him in caring for the outsider. And now things are changing. Obeying God's laws to gain righteousness is just not enough. Because for the follower of Jesus, they need to lean on God's righteousness for themselves. And this is already seen in the Old Testament. Because God promised that he would take the law and put it inside of his people. Uh, Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-three. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. And Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-seven, And I will put my spirit in you and I will move you to follow my decrees 
and be careful to keep my laws. These promises in the law are fulfilled in Jesus. As he makes us truly righteous, he gives us his Holy Spirit. He helps us daily to live for God, to be part of his kingdom. And this only happens because Jesus makes that possible for us. So for the crowd seated around Jesus, there's a real warning for them here. Don't follow the Pharisees, follow me. Uh, The law is not the way to righteousness, I am. And this is the same for us. It means that we don't achieve righteousness by following rules, but instead by Christ alone. So I want us to take away two key things from this, these four verses we've looked at. The first is that that Jesus fulfills the law. He doesn't abolish it. Like he says uh, in verse 17, everything in the Old Testament points to him. And the second thing is, the law is not the way to righteousness. Jesus is. So maybe it's a good time to pause here and, and address something that maybe you're thinking right now. What do we do now with our Old Testament? If Jesus fulfills the Old Testament and we can read about him in the New Testament, do we need to read the Old Testament? Are the Ten Commandments still ten strict rules we must follow and adhere to if Jesus says these words aren't abolished? And what about the many rules and regulations that we try and shy away from in books like Leviticus? Are they culturally bound or are they still relevant today? You see, from time to time, I think we all cringe a little bit at the Old Testament. When people in society argue that the church needs to move on, get with the times, they'll often reference obscure pieces of scripture. And so we feel embarrassed. We don't really know what to say. And when we want to focus on God's love, we'll, we'll turn to the New Testament but not really look at the Old Testament because we kind of see God's looming anger everywhere. So how do we handle our Old Testament? Well, we read it. We read it because it all points to Jesus. We read it because it shows how good God is through history. We read it because it reveals to us the problem of sin and the high bar set of the law. And we read it because it demonstrates that only Jesus can save us from our sin. We need Jesus. He fulfills the law, the prophets, all the Old Testament. Everything points to him. And so, from verse 21, Jesus brings out an application from what he's said so far. He shows that following him, if we're going to follow him right and receive his righteousness, it calls for obedience from the heart. I'll read from verse 21. You've heard it said, uh, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. It's confronting words, isn't it? 
he's re- Jesus here is reminding his followers about a very key part of the law. We've already brought it up today, the, the Ten Commandments. And this is the six, the six of the ten. You shall not murder. So the teachers of the law see murder as an act. But Jesus goes a step further and shows that it's actually more than an act. It's a problem that starts before the act. It starts in the heart. Murder begins with anger. If you call someone raka, which we might translate as imbecile or numbskull, or if you call them fool, what you're doing is you're allowing anger that's welling up in your heart out verbally. But deeper than an off-the-cuff insult, what you're actually doing is showing that you don't care for the person you're saying that to. You feel like you're above them. You feel like they don't belong in your life. You've cut them off. You've murdered them in your heart. And John agrees with this in 1 John 3.15. Anyone who hates a brother or sister is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life residing in him. I think it's right for us to take this as a pretty big warning today. For those who follow Jesus, well, of course we've been given righteousness. We've been forgiven through the cross. But Jesus, but sorry, but God wants us to follow him from the heart, not just with outward action. Jesus wants us to follow him with obedience from the heart because this is where our behavior arises from. And later in the passage in verse 23 to 24, Jesus adds that if you have a disagreement with a brother or sister, you need to reconcile with them before you can offer any gift at the altar. You see, you've got to fix the heart problem before you demonstrate outward obedience. Theologian John Stott um, talks about these few verses here, and he puts it in a modern, modern setting. He says that if you're sitting in a church service on a Sunday, like we are now, and you realise that there's a disagreement that hasn't been settled with a brother or sister, then you should stand up and walk out of the service. And this isn't because you don't have a place here or you don't belong or you're not welcome here, but instead there's an urgency to go and uh, sort it out. Now, I'm not saying you do that right now, um, but just I think it's important for us to hear the urgency that Jesus is expressing here, the urgency for reconciliation when it comes to kingdom living. Now, it's highly likely that you might be sitting here right now thinking about someone that you need to reconcile with. Because life is messy. Families are messy. The church is a messy place. Uh, We live in a world filled with fractured relationships and hurt. And I know that working towards reconciliation is something easier said than done. Uh, Working through pain and hurt is not an easy thing to do. But often, reconciliation starts with prayer. Have you prayed about it? Have you asked God to change uh, your heart, someone else's heart? Uh, Does your heart desire to find peace? Because I think it's easy to hold on to bitterness, but there's no place for this in the kingdom of God. The kingdom, it moves us towards urgency for reconciliation. And so if this has challenged you today, Maybe now is a good time to talk to someone about it. Uh, someone here at church, from the pastoral team, or a close friend. 
Because really, what's happening is through this passage, Jesus is challenging us about what's happening in our hearts. And you know your heart. I know my heart. And if you know that there's sin in your life arising from a heart issue, Jesus is saying, sort it out now. But I do want to hone in on the application that Jesus is bringing out here from verse 21. Because as I mentioned before, for the Pharisees, the act of murder was the sin. But Jesus raises the standard. He says that those who harbour angry thoughts are guilty of sin. And I think that anger is something that we all wrestle with. Um, in, in the, uh, if you've seen the Pixar film Inside Out, you'll know that anger is one of the key emotions uh, that's personified in the movie. It's something that everyone deals with day to day. And for me, I, I, as I was preparing this, I was thinking about the times, even just in the last week, where I felt irritated. I'll give you some examples. Uh, earlier this week, I was waiting at the supermarket down the road, waiting to be served. Uh, the person who was on the register, rather than serving me, was talking to a co-worker, just casually. And I had somewhere to be, and I felt a little bit irritated. Another time this last week was when I was driving stuck behind a truck going at 40 kilometres an hour in a 60 zone. Again, I was keen to get somewhere, and I felt irritated. Another time this week, I was at work, and the computer system froze up in the middle of my shift, which is always a little bit panic-inducing. And so... I was very quick to blame those who were in charge of technical operations at my workplace. You see, in each of those moments, I was frustrated at a person. And in my frustration, I made a judgment on them as being incompetent. So in a way, I was thinking that I was more important than they were. In a way, I was writing them off in my heart. And this is a real problem. Now you might be sitting there wondering about your last week, the times when you've become a little bit irritated. And how did you respond in those moments? Are there people in your life who you are more frustrated with than you are content with? And are there people that you tend to speak more sharply to than others? What are the seeds of anger in your heart? Now, this is quite challenging, I know, especially for a Sunday afternoon. But Jesus wants us to be on the lookout for this behavior. Because remember, kingdom living is upside-down living. It's different to the world around us. And we're going to continue to be challenged by this in the weeks to come. But as followers of Jesus, we need to be those who love. Because that is what God has done for us. Anger, it grows and whirls within us. It's not healthy. And we need to deal with it. We need to come to God asking for forgiveness and, and work towards peace. But sometimes it's a harder and more complicated situation where we're on the receiving end of anger. And it hurts. And living through these relationships is really hard. How, how can we live with a kingdom mindset when we have been hurt, we've seen that the Beatitudes call us to be peacemakers. We're blessed when we're insulted. 
And I know that seems easier said than done, but Jesus here is wanting us to stand out, being different in the world. And a key part of that is working towards reconciliation as best we can. Now, I say that knowing that some situations are very complicated. Um, There are times when we need to pursue justice in a situation. But as we think about the general response we have, we've got to keep asking, where is our heart? But sometimes we can be on the receiving anger, the receiving end of anger for such a long period of time to the point that maybe we just get used to it. We make excuses for the person that is angry. Yes, they're angry a lot, but it's just their demanding job. They're really tired from that. Um, Yes, they're angry a lot, but it's just the way they deal with stress. It just needs to come out somehow. Well, if you found yourself in a situation like this, where the anger has become the norm, and you're justifying such behaviour, know it's okay and right to speak up. All anger emerges from the heart. And all anger is answerable before God. So if this has raised something for you, please talk to someone about it today. For those who follow Jesus, we're called to a new way of living. We've been given a new heart, a new righteousness that comes from God himself. And now we live for him in everything. This is kingdom living. It's not just simple obedience to a set of rules. No, Jesus wants us to keep in step with his character through the new hearts he has given us. And this means leaning on Jesus in everything because he has done everything for us. There's no rules to keep up with to achieve holiness anymore. We don't have any right to feel self-righteous because Jesus has given us his own righteousness. He's fulfilled the law. He's made made a way for us to be truly righteous from the heart. And I think it's something we should give him thanks for now. Let's pray. Father, this is such a challenging piece of um, your word. And we know our hearts very well this evening. We know the ways in which we fail you each and every day. Um, But Lord, we thank you so much that you offer grace upon grace. And you're quick to forgive. So Lord... Um, please challenge us this afternoon to, uh, to know how best to move forward with the things we've been considering. But also, uh, we just give you thanks so much for Jesus, um, that he has made a way for us to live differently to this world, but um, salt and light in a way that will bless others. Um, please help us and, uh, and help us to live for you in everything. In Jesus' name, amen.